Welcome to Jersey Arts, the podcast. I'm Susan Wallner. That's Jen Colella as Amelia Earhart in a rehearsal of the McCarter Theater's new production, Take Flight. It's based on the stories of Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, and the Wright brothers. Take Flight has been in the works for over 10 years, and in 2007, an earlier version was even staged in London's West End. But now, the creative team responsible for this original new musical says the work is done, in large part due to the McCarter support during readings and workshops over the past few years. Academy Award-winning composer David Shire, Saturday Night Fever, Tony Award-winning lyricist Richard Maltby, Ain't Misbehavin', and Tony Award-winning librettist John Weidman, Assassins, sat down with me during rehearsal to talk about the play and its evolution. Lyricist Richard Maltby began by describing what originally drew them to the subject of flight. It started as a, as a fascination with the idea that, that leaving the ground, that flying was the, um, the ultimate barrier for humankind, that that was the sign that humankind had arrived at something when they could leave the ground. And that seemed really an, an interesting story to tell. And it seemed to be a metaphor for creativity and for uh, you know the human spirit and all of those things. Um, over the time that we've worked on it, it has evolved into something else. We've become interested in the actual people who did these extraordinary things, and they are um, bizarre, mysterious, and quirky and uh, interesting people. The show is really about them, and it is less about the joy of, of uh, and the exhilaration of flying than it is an, a, an a exploration into the kinds of people who do these amazing and uh, death-defying and uh, uh, extraordinary events. Uh, the story, the, the show interweaves the story of the Wright brothers who invented the airplane, Lindbergh, who was the first to fly solo across the Atlantic, and Amelia Earhart was the first, to, first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. When, the, uh, when I got involved, because David and Richard had been working on the show for some time before um, I became part of the team, um, uh, there were a number of other um, people associated with aviation uh, who were part of the tapestry of the story. Librettist John Weidman. Not only these three iconic figures, but we, uh, we, we, we narrowed the, the evening down to these three. and. Um, in part, I mean, the first choice was because they, each of them had, uh, was the first to accomplish some extraordinary feat. Wright Brothers to fly at all, Lindbergh to cross the Atlantic, and Amelia for the same thing, the first woman to cross the Atlantic. But it, it um, I mean, beyond that, and the interesting part of it, uh, as we worked on it, was that they, they, although they don't appear to have much in common with each other, it, they, they, they present a sort of similar uh, uh, collection of symptoms. It's like if you, if you were a doctor and uh, the Wright brothers came in, uh, the, it, their, their symptoms are elusive and they're kind of hard to figure out um, what made them tick and how to diagnose it. Um, if the next person into your office was Lindbergh, um, and the Wright brothers hadn't come in, you'd have the same problem, same with Amelia, but if they came in one after the other, um, you'd, you'd have a syndrome. You'd, you'd have a, you would begin to see uh, s similar characteristics expressed in different ways um, because, because their personalities are so different. And th that overlap began to suggest that um, uh, there really was a, a, 
a, a fascinating show to do if you put these three stories, these three characters on stage, uh, and explored, and you know, and arrived at a diagnosis. <laughs> uh, and and um, that's really what we've sort of been working on for the last couple of years, and we're we're, we're we think we, we think we got there. So, what are the symptoms? Obsession, uh, and <clears throat> and an inability to to take no for an answer. Composer David Shire. Really, the world said flying was in, impossible, heavier than air flight. The Wright brothers just kept going through failure after failure for four years uh, until they invented the plane. Uh, Lindbergh, everyone thought he was a fool to fly solo, not take a co-pilot. He said that's the way to do it. Everyone was building huge planes with big crews, taking sandwiches and bottles of champagne to celebrate when they, they got there, and crashing into the ocean. He said, no, the way to do it is to go as light as possible and make the plane a flying gas tank. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He raised the money for the plane. Uh, he, he found the, the uh, factory that would build it and, and did it. And Amelia wouldn't take no for an answer from her f publisher, lover, husband, George Putnam. That's our, our love story. He said, you have to stop flying uh, after she had crossed the, uh, convinced him to finance her flight across the Atlantic. He said, I, I, I can't. I want a, one more flight around the world. He said, you're going to kill me with worry. Every time you go up, I'm afraid you're not going to come back. No, she made him agree to a deal that she would stop flying if she went around the world. And of course, she almost made it, but, but didn't. And there's something very American, really, in that ability to, that, that symptom, as John puts it, to just say, no, I'm going to do this. In fact, I was saying during the Obama campaign that we could have title, entitled this show, Yes, We Can. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about these three stories, but you can apply this all over the place, is that um, outcomes um, uh, often determine the way the process that preceded the outcome is characterized. Um, the, um, uh, there, we've all seen shots of guys who've constructed odd flying machines and strapped them on their backs and then they fall off cliffs. And there's usually, usually sort of silent comedy music playing when it. Um, um, the, the Wright brothers and Lindbergh were viewed by many people <laughs> in, in exactly the same way um, uh, as sort of ob obsessed clowns the difference is they succeeded, and so once they succeeded, this sort of ob obsessive inability to let go of something was seen as uh, something admirable, perseverance and, and stick-to-itiveness. And um, uh, but if Lindbergh had, had crashed uh, over the Atlantic, had not made it to Paris, um, this celebration of um, his sort of uh, Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart. Oh shucks! I can do this by myself. Um, would be viewed very differently. <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting is that they, these th three stories, these four people, but three you sort of consider the Wright brothers one. Um, 
had none of them had done anything of any distinction before they did the the earth-shaking thing that they did they were um, uh, you know not particularly significant uh, in school they hadn't uh, done any of anything of any significance beforehand and they got this idea with no particular reason I mean the world hadn't patted them on the back beforehand they just got this idea and went there and uh, and then did these extraordinary things the Wright brothers, in fact, spent the rest of their life trying to prove to the world that they had actually done what they did because nobody believed the two people who had never gone beyond high school could actually have rewritten the entire mathematical basis of aviation in a year. Uh, they finally proved that they did it. The French were very busy um, inventing the airplane themselves, and, and uh, a couple, I guess a couple of years after the first flight, uh, Orville, I, uh, Wilbur died quite young, but Orville traveled to France w with his flyer and, and demonstrated the way it works, and the French just threw up their hands in embarrassment. I mean, they had a t sort of a toy compared to what the Wright brothers had already achieved. But nobody knew because there were no airplanes, so you couldn't get from, from the United States to France easily, and, and uh, so information didn't travel as quickly as it does now. So have you learned something from your subjects? Because this production itself has taken, has well, gone through some. <laughs> of course, the writing of a musical is not, un not unlike inventing the airplane. No, I mean, it's really, you, you, we, you have to be just as, as obsessed. You have to be uh, willing to keep going, even though everybody says, why are you doing this? Including that little voice in your own head saying, why are you doing this? I prefer to think we persevered rather than that we were yes. obsessed. <laughs> but, you know, it is an, an obsession, and, and uh, particularly if you want to do something that, you know, hasn't been done before. The form of the show is not like other musicals, so we can't kind of compare it to other shows. It is what it is, and... So there's genuine invention going on, and it's comparable. And we've been at it for over a decade. It's had a, a interesting pre-McCarter life. It's had productions and uh, concert versions in Russia, in Australia. Richard and I performed songs from it on a cruise ship in the Panama Canal. Uh, Over the objections, of the it's been done in full production. <laughs> <laughs> full productions in London uh, three years ago, and in Japan. Uh, so we've had plenty of time to look at, and numerous workshops, including three at the McCarter, and a writers' retreat, or as we like to think of it, a writers' advance, sponsored by the McCarter, uh, two years ago. Uh, in June where we came and worked on the show and took all that we had learned in London and started, it tore it apart and started putting it back together again. The McCarter, by the way, has been just a sensational place to work on the show. Uh, they have been so supportive, so nurturing, and um, they finally said, we're going to do this show and then figured out how to raise the financing to do it instead of the other way around. Otherwise, I don't think it would have gotten on. And, uh, w w I mean, uh, here, here, I mean, the McCarter's been really spectacular. Um, um, but we also picked up along the way a, a director named Sam Buntrock, who did a production in London when we were still sort of floundering around trying to kind of figure the material out. 
And um, uh, Sam's been a, a, a sort of a partner in this ever since. And um, uh, I think he, he has, not in terms of, of the content as much as in terms of the way the content should be presented on stage in order to emphasize the issues that we've been talking about. He's been really smart about that, and so uh, we feel like we're in very good hands with him. What do each of you bring to this? Well, the music in a musical is generally about the passion, the emotion, the subtext, uh, emotional subtext, uh, the things that words can't quite, can't quite define. Um, it's a very lyrical score. It, it's interesting, when, when Richard first came to me with the idea and mentioned these three figures, I said, I, my first impulse was to think they're kind of white bread. Um, they're kind of passionless, he said. Passionless and, and you know, the right stuff, uh, personality, very uh, soft-spoken and Scientific. Methodical and scientific and, and sort of yeah. calm. It, it, it was hard to see the passions in what but they as, did. As we explored them and this whole thing about obsession came through, you, you, you realize that in order to do what they did, they had to have feelings inside that were normally unexpressed. Amelia wouldn't say these things. Lindbergh wouldn't say these things. The Wright brothers famously soft-spoken, wouldn't say these things. But a musical allows the music, allows them to say these things. Uh, and that's what's exciting. That's, that's why we suddenly realized the, these are characters for a musical. The music can add something that you couldn't even add as well in a play. The, the, um all three of these characters are sort of famously elusive. They were elusive in their lifetimes and ha have remained elusive since. Amelia Earhart, uh, I mean, is usually defined in terms of the mystery of her disappearance, but she was as mysterious to people when she was alive uh, as she was when she was disappearing. Um, and Lindbergh, uh, you know, despite, you know, having been uh, exhaustively analyzed and uh, quite brilliantly by Scott Berg and his Pulitzer Prize-winning autobiography continues to be full of surprises. I mean, these families that were discovered scattered around Germany that Lindbergh, you know, if there are three marriages in Germany, uh, uh, you know. Sorry, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, no, uh, well, this was all discovered uh, within the last year and a half or so. Wow. And, um, um, uh, you know, again, he had this sort of soft-spoken, admired American modesty, the kind of Gary Cooper persona that's what he presented to the world. But what was actually going on inside him is something that I don't think anybody ever really had access to. And um, the, uh, the Wright brothers, were that's just the way they were. <laughs> you know, they maybe talked to each other, but they didn't do a lot of talking to other people. Uh, but it does mean that, you know, um, um, I'm really just seconding what David is saying, that music is a way of, of sort of piercing that veil and um, exposing the inner lives which we believe uh, they had, uh, which we believe make them interesting. It's not a history. This this show is not a history book. Uh, it is uh, it is a, a work of fiction based on real people, and it's based upon the facts that are known facts, some of them. Um, but because the the characters are elusive, we've felt 
free to, uh, as writers, to, um, to invent the people that we think must have been inside to have done all of the things that they did. So it, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not always literally uh, factually true, um, but perhaps maybe more true than, than biographies are. In the the um, an interesting thing came up, for instance, to give you an example with the Wright brothers. There's you know been volumes, libraries full, written on them, um, and never anything about them being musical in any way. Well, it, Richard had a collection of pictures of their um, shed that they lived in and worked in in, in uh, Kitty Hawk. And in one of them, it shows all of their supplies lined up neatly on the wall. And uh, they constantly said, uh, we will not bring anything that we don't need. Very practical, very pragmatic. And in the corner of the picture, there's half of a mandolin hanging on the wall. And in this whole library of books about the Wright brothers, there's no mention of a mandolin, ever. Now, if they brought a mandolin, given the personalities they had, there was some reason for it. It wasn't a decoration. If they brought it, somebody was playing If they brought only things they need, then they had to want to play the mandolin. Somebody was playing that mandolin. That gave us permission to write a number in the second act where Orville plays the mandolin. My my theory was that there first attempt to build an airplane involved putting wings on a mandolin, but uh, I, yeah. I couldn't get that past my collaborators. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. The way I've heard it described, there are three parallel stories that are connected in some bigger way. Well, in, in time, of course, they're not, they're not contemporary. I mean, they, the Wright brothers did theirs in 1903. Lindbergh took his flight in, in 1927. Amelia's didn't appear until 1928, and her story continues all the way to 1937. 37. 37. And uh, so, so um, any simultaneous telling of it is going to juxtapose different time periods. Um, but it's sort of the that's the thing that theater can do, and uh, it it allows you to to sort of have the stories knock into each other. Uh, and and uh, reverberate against each other. Um, yeah, I mean, one one one, one hopes that the um, the choice of what to put on stage in each of the three stories, that's a first choice. Um, but in in many cases, uh, those choices would be driven by the impact of juxtaposing this piece of the Wright brothers' story with that piece of Amelia's story, so that the I mean, you have you have two separate scenes, but it's like there's a there's a third statement that's made by moving from this the Wright brothers to Earhart, not arbitrarily, but very deliberately. Um, um, and you know, we always had that in mind as we designed the the piece. I guess I'm thinking of them as almost having different styles as well, because I've heard at least a, the visual aspect of the play. They each have a very different look. Sam has always. Uh, thought, thought of the uh, musical as really three different musicals with three different styles. The Wright Brothers kind of a vaudeville, uh, Lindbergh kind of a memory play because most of the action of his 
his story takes place in flashbacks from his flight, and with Amelia, a more realistic, uh, you know, South Pacific type type musical. And he's had fun juxtaposing those styles. And musically the same way, of course, with three different periods, the music makes a nod towards towards different sounds, different harmonies, different melodic shapes for those I have those to say, you know, David has written an absolutely glorious score for this. It, it that captures all of that, uh, the, the, all the things that couldn't be expressed about the glory of uh, of invention and flying and, and all that. It's, it, it's in the music and um, Thank I'm, you, I'm pretty happy to be around it. I'll, I'll pile on for a minute just to say the same, same thing. The last new song that uh, uh, Dave and Richard wrote, they played, came and played in my living room and um, uh, what David had captured that needed to be captured in this particular moment, um, musically, I thought was extraordinary. Uh, and the lyrics were pretty good too. <laughs> You say the last new song. I know there's been some, some drops of songs and, and action from the first time around. Along the, first the way, pounds. yeah, but not so much in, 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 in rehearsal. It, it, the, the standard kind of thing when you put a new musical into rehearsal is that you, on the first day of rehearsal, you say, oh my God, that doesn't work. And you go to, you know, you start almost immediately replacing songs. We, because of the long process that we've gone through, we have actually gone into rehearsal with a show that is you know, we feel pretty confident is the show that 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 we that we want. I mean, we'll see it on stage and just you know go to work, I suppose. But but uh, for for this rehearsal period, we have not been uh, doing that, and that has allowed uh, Sam and the actors to actually rehearse, which is really kind of wonderful. And mostly with musicals, you're rehearsing something, and the sands are shifting underneath you all the time as you rehearse one scene and the authors come trotting in and give you a different version of the same scene um, or a replacement scene. You all have work independently, I know, but this is a chance for you to work together, which you've also done in the past. Yes, we, we worked on Big. We were great friends before that and we always wanted to I managed work to remain them after, which was enough well, to make us go forward. Let's you know. not overstate yes, again. Uh, so this is really the second the second outing for us officially as as collaborators, and uh, it's quite a different experience because certainly Big and Take Flight are about as different in style and substance really as you can get in in, in musicals. Um, one of the big differences being that Take Flight is an original, which is so much harder to do than an adaptation, which Big was, is. Mm -hmm. um, John can talk more specifically about that, but you are, there are big warning signs in musical theater <laughs> next to the swamp of writing an original saying, do not tread here. I mean, most, most musicals still are adaptations, uh, but the, the um, um, you know, if you, if you look at the stuff that I've written and the stuff that David and Richard uh, have written, um, well, all of us are drawn to uh, uh, original material and I, it's not original material f for the sake of original material, but it often seems to me that um, if a story has been told well in another medium, um, the world doesn't need the story to be retold uh, with music added, even though, you know, some of the 
great musicals like My Fair Lady. It's not like Pygmalion was a dog of a play, and and uh, thank God somebody took it and and, and made it palatable um, by adding songs to it. But there there there's so many tools that are available to you in the musical theater. Um, obviously, music being uh, the the uh, most obvious one, but also movement and um, um, expanding into choreography and applying that to an, an original take on something that nobody has thought through before is just, I find, more stimulating than um, uh, trying to take something and make it work again. Um, you know, I mean, it, the adaptations that are usually the most interesting are adaptations of something that actually didn't work very well the first time. Um, but um, this is, it's more fun. And John is, of course, the the reigning master of taking historical material and crafting it into musicals with assassins and Pacific overtures, and uh, most recently Roadshow. Uh, the reigning master, because there's nobody else who occupies the field with me, so it makes it it's easy to come in the first yes, place. Yes. He's the, the the winner in a field of one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But as a, as a result, he really knows how to the 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 the, the tricks of of. Uh, Taking you know historic material and weeding it down to the the dramatic center that's going to make a play out of it, um, you know. And finding the as Picasso once said, "Art is a lie that tells you the truth." John is very good at finding the the lies, the not strictly factual material that tells you truths about these characters that uh, you couldn't say in in. Pages in a biography. That's your Don John. I'm going to buy these guys. I'm going to buy these guys lunch. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I think uh, I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm thinking it's going to be very interesting. Well, for one thing, because these are all beloved characters in our history, and we all have opinions about them. So it'll be very interesting well, what, to see how. Well, what's really, that's really interesting, I think, is that ev since everybody l learns about these three people in, you know, in grade school, um, well, you know, the people who they're going to learn about on the on the stage are are different, much more complex, much more interesting, I think, um, and startling. Uh, people, so I think uh, um, uh, you know you're not going to just come and, and get uh, um, a comforting view of something you already know. You're going to find something that you didn't know. I think. A hundred miles of beach, a full mile wide in spots, a single hill you reach by climbing up a hundred foot high. You're listening to Stanton Nash and Benjamin Schrader as the Wright Brothers. Take Flight begins previews at the McCarter Theater on April 30th and runs through June 6th. For more information, visit mccarter.org or jerseyarts.com. I'm Susan Wallner for Jersey Arts the Podcast, a production of State of the Arts. Watch it on NJN1 Public Television, Thursdays at 8 p.m. and on NJN2 at 5 and 11 p.m. Individual stories can be seen anytime on njn.net. The New Jersey State Council on the Arts is proud to co-produce State of the Arts. 
the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, encouraging excellence in the arts since 1966. Additional support was provided by the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, supporting cultural, educational, and environmental initiatives that make our world more livable. What are we doing here? We had no constant wind and rain. And with no wind, our project dies. The great Smithsonian said, here's where we find all conditions right. So let somebody 